0: Hello, and welcome to the Tea Leaves podcast, where we bring Asia to you through conversations with the people whose lives and work are shaping the Indo Pacific region.
1: And what I sense is that China and the United States at this stage are on something of a collision course. And the principle and grounds for it being on a collision course is, of course, the future status of Taiwan. That there are other possibilities as well, which could trigger what I describe as a series of incidents escalation, crisis, conflict, and war. But knowledge of the strategic red lines of each side does help, in my judgment, to stabilise behaviours as opposed to the push and shove we have in the unguided terrain of the present. The second element of managed strategic competition is if you can deal with lethal forms of potential competition in the manner I've just described, then in the rest of the relationship you can have all forms of non-lethal competition and the rest of security policy through enhancing each other's each side's military and deterrent capabilities and eventual warfighting capabilities. You can um, continue the contest for foreign policy influence around the world, economic influence around trade around the world, trade, investment, technology, capital markets, currency markets, you name it, and ideology. And then finally, to complete the picture. The third element of Managed Strategic Competition is to still carve out sufficient space, politically and diplomatically, to embrace the possibility of collaboration still in areas where you need to. I'm Rex and Yu, Managing Partner at
0: The Asia Group. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by the Honourable Kevin Rudd, who served as Australia's 26th Prime Minister from 2007 to 2010, and again in 2013, and as well as its foreign minister from 2010 to 2012. Today, Kevin is global president and CEO of the Asia Society in New York and president of the Asia Society Policy Institute. Kevin is the author of a book just published titled The Avoidable War, The Dangers of a Catastrophic Conflict Between the United States and Xi Jinping's China which is available now everywhere where books are sold. Kevin, thank you very much for joining us today. It's a pleasure and an honor to have you with us on Tea Leaves. Thanks, Rickson, for having me. And I look forward to us discerning the Tea Leaves together. Let's dive right into it and see how successful we can be. Kevin, I would say that the title of your book sets out the premise pretty clearly that you tackle, which is the risk of conflict between the United States and China. And if I want to highlight as we start here a couple points you make up front, which I find very useful in framing the discussion, just to read a couple excerpts, short excerpts. You say early on that there is a recurring theme of mutual non-comprehension and deep suspicion, often followed by periods of exaggerated hopes and expectations that then collapse in the face of fundamentally different political and strategic imperatives. And the second frame that I want to highlight for our listeners is that you characterize the 2020s as the decisive decade where we are living dangerously with the risk of conflict between the United States and China. So you frame this with a long arc of history of challenges in the relationship, but also that it is the conflict sort of looms potentially for us between the United States and China. Is that a fair characterization of of sort of a couple of the key elements as I see them in your framing of your discussion of the challenge and then your ideas for what we might do about
1: it? Yes, Rex, and I think that uh, goes to the heart of it. The bottom line is this, those of us who are in the midst of history often lose sight of when history is beginning to move towards conclusion points. And that requires, I think, additional insight and standing back from the cut and thrust of day-to-day geopolitics and geoeconomics, who said what, when, about whom, and looking at, frankly, the macro direction. And what I sense is that China and the United States at this stage are on something of a collision course. And the principle and grounds for it being on a collision course is, of course, the future status of Taiwan. But there are other possibilities as well, which could trigger what I describe as a series of incidents, escalation, crisis, conflict and war. And the further point I would make is that this particular decade, which I call the decade of living dangerously, is when because of China becoming more powerful, under Xi Jinping, China becoming more assertive. The United States now responding that what were once a series of abstract possibilities for accidental conflict become more real given the amount of metal being thrown around in the air and on the seas and in cyberspace, though not metal, in the South China Sea, the East China Sea, over Taiwan, possible contingencies arising over the Korean Peninsula and in cyber and space. So therefore, the basis for the book is we can either passively stand back and watch all this trend in a particular direction, which uh, frankly throws a lot uh, in the hands of risk and good fortune, or we can seize this uh, with both our hands and seek to devise a joint strategic framework between Beijing and Washington, which is deeply realist, accepts that we're in a competitive strategic relationship. But rather than that being totally unmanaged strategic competition, to inject some basic guardrails, some basic rules of the road. And that's what the book is largely about. As you look at the political debate
0: and the discourse here in Washington, as well as in Beijing, and, you know, as someone who as a mandarin speaker you also have this is a a benefit that you've highlighted that very few leaders have you're able to try to evaluate chinese discourse in their language rather than translated do you see any debate along the lines of what you just laid out in either capital right now I'd, i'd like to sort of set the stage here of how you assess the posture and conversation in each capital, maybe starting
1: with Washington? Well, as I'm not an American, I'm bound to screw up in describing what's actually happening in the United States. I've lived among you for the last uh, five of the last seven years in in New York. I'm in Washington on a regular basis. I know lots of folks, both in the current administration and the previous administration. But I do sense underneath it all, a mainstream Republican and Democrat, a uh, deepening conclusion that the United States is in the process of enhancing its military preparedness, enhancing what it perceives to be its deterrent capabilities, uh, both conventional and, frankly, nuclear, and beyond that also engaged in a much more vigorous response in foreign policy, its own national economic policy, for example, trade sanctions over Hong Kong, tariffs in the US-China trade war, technology bans over Huawei, as well as a much more robust ideological pushback against China. And furthermore, if you go up to Capitol Hill, uh, what you see is a unity ticket uh, and a degree of what I would describe as nationalist resolve in the United States to push back and to see China as an increasingly existential threat to America's continuation as the preponderant global power. On the Chinese side, the Chinese Communist Party is a Marxist-Leninist party, and its Marxism-Leninism has always produced a view of history which sees the forces of history as pushing its party, and once it took control of the country China, its country forward. And under Xi Jinping as a Marxist-Leninist himself, he sees China as engaged in an inexorable, irreversible rise. And as a consequence of that, he is engaged in a series of forward-leaning postures, which actually bring us closer to confrontation rather than further away from confrontation. Add to that admixture the power of Chinese nationalism reflected through the propaganda apparatus of the Chinese Communist Party uh, with young people across the mass media, across social media, and the uh, demonization of the United States. We are therefore landed in a very difficult set of strategic circumstances once you put these two sets of emerging strategic and political perceptions together. On the Washington side, I would
0: absolutely agree with you on your characterization of the dialogue right now. And it is, as you will have seen, one that sort of unfolded in particular from my perspective over the last two to three years in the debate both among sort of republican and democratic strategists around the question of of whether a balance of cooperation and competition has failed and it has produced i think the kind of emerging consensus that you describe i want to pick up kevin on your comments at the end regarding the Beijing side of the equation, and you spend some time in the book highlighting not just the sort of objective consequences of a status quo power and a rising power, but the role that Xi Jinping has played as he has consolidated his rule over the last number of years. And you describe that, you know, a little bit into your book as Having done, you know, kind of interestingly, I think three things you touch on one, right, which is a reinvigoration of the Marxist Leninist foundations of China. And you also characterize President Xi as having turbocharged Chinese nationalism and sharpening China's national ambitions. And you unpack these around 10 concentric circles of interests. Can you just get us a little deeper into? kind of a bit of this perspective and analysis of Xi's worldview, because I think it really gets at a key aspect of the challenge of any strategy of strategic engagement to create a framework here.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, Rex, it's really important for our American friends to understand how China views the world and how Xi Jinping views the world and the United States. If you go back to um, Kennan's famous work in the X-Article and Longer Telegram, he did it. These analyses by Kennan in the uh, mid-40s about uh, the unfolding Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union were grounded in a deep analysis of the Soviet Union and the CPSU, the Communist Party, the Soviet Union, and Russia more broadly. I think that's really important uh, in the United States, the simple reason that there's always a danger of what we call strategic mirror imaging, that China will behave in the following pattern because that's what we would do in similar circumstances. So it's important to, as it were, put on a different hat and look at the world through a different uh, lens. In summary, what's Xi Jinping's worldview? I try to put it into three core points, which is firstly, to preserve the future of the Chinese Communist Party, he has moved the centre of gravity of Chinese politics domestically a long way to the left, a reassertion of the power of a party over people's lives and a reassertion of his power over the party in a trajectory which takes us back in the direction of Mao rather than forward into a direction which uh, has more diffuse or collective leadership arrangements, and with greater, as it were, political space for people to have dissonant while not dissenting views. The second big worldview change uh, with Xi Jinping, and and again on the domestic front, is to push the centre of gravity of Chinese political economy further to the left as well. A reassertion of the role of the party in the economy of state-owned enterprises over private enterprises, of party committees within private firms, of a new mixed economy model which enables state-owned enterprises to take equity in private firms, and for private firms to be encouraged to take equity in failing state-owned enterprises, new doctrines of common prosperity, which is about wealth redistribution on the part of Chinese um, zillionaire class. And beyond that, again, a re embrace of Chinese industrial policy across the whole spectrum against a governing set of principles around national economic and technological self-reliance. Now, it's important to understand that because that's, again, part of reasserting the party's control over an economy where Xi Jinping was concerned about the rising power and status of China's new entrepreneurial class. But of course, there's a cost to that. Economic growth starts to, in fact, slow down as private sector leaders begin to lose confidence in the model. And the third big ideological change under Xi Jinping within his worldview is to push the centre of gravity of Chinese nationalism to the right and, based on that, to pursue a much more assertive, vigorous and many would say aggressive foreign security policy within the region and the world with the object of changing the dial. So in all these things, what I argue is that Xi Jinping's worldview is not a status quo worldview. There's a bit of a parlour game sometimes played in Washington, D.C., and the sinological community as to how much of this is continuity from the pre-Xi Jinping period and how much is change. Well, we can parlour game our way uh, into eternity if we like. But my crude Australian summary, and we're paid to be crude in Australia, is along these lines. Some of the elements of the change we see under Xi Jinping can be discerned in the second term of Hu Jintao between 2008 and 2012. But what we've seen with uh, Xi Jinping is a radical turbocharging of all three sets of changes that I've just referred to. And uh, if this podcast is both audio and visual think of a line going in a semi-horizontal direction and then kicking up at about 45 to 60 degrees. That's kind of the degree of change against these three matrices of change that I've just sought to describe. So,
0: Kevin, if we look now to how you prescribe some policy options for dealing with this dangerous mix, you encourage your readers to consider this notion of engagement between the two leaders, the two governments, to produce what you describe and characterize as a framework for managed strategic competition across sort of all aspects of how the United States and China interact to include the most uh, sensitive, the most volatile aspects where we could see the, the conflict erupt as, in your view, the, the, the way to avoid the worst case scenarios and manage the rise of China with presumably the United States being able to continue to hold on to what it considers its core interests and core values. I guess first question I have as you look at the situation today, and I want to get to what today means sort of post-Russia invasion of Ukraine, but is there enough overlap as you look at the worldview you just described of the Chinese leader, you know, an autocrat and the sort of hardening of the political view here coupled with the prospect of political domestic uncertainty on the U.S. side, as we look to what may happen, what you know, what might unfold in our next presidential cycle. How hard is it to achieve the kind of framework that you envision, and is that possible without weathering a crisis to sort of shock everybody into the risks?
1: Yeah, these are excellent questions. The bottom line is um, I'm kind of old-fashioned. I rather prefer peace to war. So I know it's an old-fashioned view, uh, but um, that's kind of what I uh, am animated by. But secondly, I do so from a totally realist perspective. I don't believe we can solve this dilemma between Beijing and Washington by a bit of kumbaya in the corner, a bit of hand-holding, a bit of seminars, uh, a few seminars between the leaderships and, and with one side saying, oh, now I understand what you're really on about. It's all fine and dandy, and um, let's go down and uh, have a glass of red wine. It's not like that, but I do operate from the premise that neither leader, and certainly Xi Jinping, doesn't want to accidentally blow each other's brains out, and that's a pretty realist interest on the part of both the Chinese and the American state, and those of your of America's allies, of which there are forty six treaty allies in the world. Furthermore. If you go back into history and in the US-Soviet relationship, it took the near-death experience of 62 in Cuba, in the missile crisis, to result in a series of principles to be developed between the Americans and the Soviets, which managed strategic competition between the two sides. And for 30 years of subsequent Cold War, it was rough and tough proxy wars in third countries, massive ideological disputation, zero economic engagement between the two, and uh, a constant push for foreign policy influence. But they did resolve post-62 internally, though not declared externally, that blowing each other's brains out was not a good idea. This was bad for business in both countries. So therefore, do we need to have a Cuban Missile Crisis type event in China-US relations, I think both the political systems in Beijing and Washington are wise enough and mature enough to understand these narrow lessons of history. And therefore, my argument is that there is a constituency within both the Chinese leadership and I believe in the White House looking for a de minima set of rules of the road, a de minima set of guardrails around the relationship, which reduce, albeit never eliminate, the risk of Incident, Escalation, Crisis, Conflict and War for the Decade of Living Dangerously that I described before. I think the other thing important to identify, Rexon, is what do I mean, therefore, by managed strategic competition? At present, we have unmanaged strategic competition, which is it's a bit like a rolling game of push and shove in the playground. And that is, um, you know, you keep pushing, you keep shoving, you keep pushing and shoving until someone actually swings a punch. Now, I'm sure Australian playgrounds are rougher than American playgrounds. <laughs> you guys are inherently more disciplined and restrained than the wild colonial boys from down under. But let me just say, let's just say it doesn't work out well. Then you're into a world of pain. But that currently is how it works on the high seas and in the air and in cyber and space. And frankly, it's quite dangerous and inherently destabilizing. The alternative approach in the book is uh, not rocket science. Uh, I'm Australian, we don't do rocket science down here. It is three core principles. One, around five sets of strategic red lines on Taiwan, uh, on South China Sea, East China Sea, Korean Peninsula, cyber and space. That each side through the high level diplomacy involving National Security Advisors, Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense on the US side and their Chinese counterparts, not a group bigger than six, articulate to each other as clearly as possible what their irreducible strategic red lines on each of these issues is. And to indicate that they don't expect this to be a negotiated outcome between both sides as they reach convergence on uh, what is an agreed position on Taiwan, because that is simply impossible. But knowledge of the strategic red lines of each side does help in my judgment to stabilize behaviors as opposed to the push and shove we have in the unguided terrain of the present. The second element of managed strategic competition is if you can deal with lethal forms of potential competition in the manner I've just described, then in the rest of the relationship, you can have all forms of non lethal competition in the rest of security policy through enhancing each other's, each side's military and deterrent capabilities and eventual warfighting capabilities. You can um, continue the contest foreign policy influence around the world, economic influence around trade, around the world, trade, investment, technology, capital markets, currency markets, you name it, and ideology. A uh, Chinese-based order anchored in the principles of authoritarian state capitalism or an American-led order based on the principles of, let's call it, liberal democratic capitalism. And then finally, to complete the picture, the third element of managed strategic competition is to still carve out sufficient space, politically and diplomatically, to embrace the possibility of collaboration still in areas where need to. Climate change, given these two countries are the world's two largest polluters and emitters. Secondly, the next pandemic and global public health challenges, given how royally we screwed up the global management of the last one, all of us, China, America, and most other countries. And then thirdly, how we manage continued global financial stability, given the sheer size of the Chinese economy and financial system, and having been through the global financial crisis myself in office, and understood acutely how close we came to the financial and economic abyss back then. Let me tell you, this requires high-level granular attention through the G20, through the Financial Stability Board, and through the Basel Committee. Uh, in order to guarantee or to reduce the risks of uh, global financial and economic implosion, that, in a nutshell, is managed strategic competition. You make it sound so easy, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> well, it ain't. I know. My, ta- my challenge in the book, Rexon, is the people who will throw stones at this, and they're already lining up. I'm sure, is come up with a better proposal. Uh, that's what I'm asking. That's the challenge out there. I will set up a thousand dollar Asia Society prize. Better proposal and a free trip to Tennessee. There you go.
0: <laughs> you heard it here first. Let me ask you just quickly, I know we're coming up on time. China's response and position in Russia's invasion of Ukraine, you know, the summit that Xi Jinping and President Putin held, the statement that came out, did it change your view or did it reinforce your assessment? I know, and I know it's not an either or, but if you had to sort of say which way it shaded you, I'm curious, you know, how did that impact your perspective?
1: Yeah, given that none of us have been to China for a couple of years, it's difficult to sit down and chew the fat with our friends in the People's Liberation Army, security policy establishment over a couple of Maltais and say, well, comrade, what do you think? It's a bit hard and you can't really do that on Zoom in the current political environment. So therefore, this is analysis rather than information. But my judgment, having continued to read the strategic literature and the social media responses to what's unfolded with Russia and Ukraine, is that among Chinese political and military elites, it hasn't changed China's worldview much, if at all. Xi Jinping has been marching to his own timetable on Taiwan, in my judgment, aiming to uh, bring the Taiwan question to a conclusion. Sometime in the late 20s, in the early 30s, that's why I call this the decade of living dangerously in part, And that therefore, the warning messages coming out of Ukraine, which is don't underestimate your adversaries, and secondly, invading another country or uh, entity is a tricky business, let alone an amphibious invasion as opposed to a terrestrial invasion. And thirdly, beware the financial and economic consequences. But knowing the Chinese military, as I do reasonably, they have been making these assumptions for a very long time themselves about an overwhelming preponderance of forces across the Taiwan Strait. And furthermore, uh, for China to be sufficiently financially and economically resilient by that time, that it would not be massively vulnerable to sanctions such as those which have been imposed against the Russian Federation. So I know there's a view uh, often... I hear in and around, kicking around the beltway, which is what I describe as back of the cornflakes packet strategic analysis, uh, which is kind of like this. While the United States is preoccupied with Russia and Ukraine, won't the Chinese spring to attention and march across the Taiwan Strait sometime soon? No, the Chinese don't take large scale risks like that. They're prepared to take some risks, but not that one, or the other analysis, which is Russia's been beaten around so much in the field and in the economy that uh, this has uh, pushed off any Chinese considerations to move against Taiwan. Uh, Both of these are silly, to be quite honest, and uh, they cloud what I describe as deep, clear-sighted analysis of the reality that we face. And so I think it's important for us to be regrounded in reality on that question. Kevin, I feel like we've just scratched the
0: surface, but I I know we're, we're at time here, and I have really enjoyed the conversation and unpacking at least some of the key aspects of your book, which again is the avoidable war, the dangers of catastrophic conflict between the United States and Xi Jinping's China. I'd commend it to our listeners who are eager to learn a little bit more about this defining aspect of global geopolitics. Thank, Kevin, thank you so much for joining
1: us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rickson, for having me on your podcast. I really appreciate it. And to all your listeners here, buy lots of copies of books. I'm now in the retail game. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and thank you to our listeners as well.
0: Please be sure, in addition to buying Kevin's book, to rate and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also access the full video of our conversation on the Asia Group's YouTube channel. We'll see you next time on Tea Leaves.